This episode of Behind the Bots is brought to you by Fingertech Robotics, North America's top manufacturer of combat robotics parts. If you're interested in building your first combat robot, check out Fingertech's Viper Kit, which includes everything you need to build a fully functional, competitive ant weight. Fingertech also carries a complete line of wheels, hubs, motors, and other components if you want to build a bot from the ground up. Check them out online at www.fingertechrobotics.com. From our living rooms, as we practice social distancing, this is Behind the Bots, the podcast that brings you the stories of the builders behind BattleBots. I'm Chris. I'm Luke. I'm Lindsay. And I'm Kyle. And today on the podcast, our interview with a mysterious new builder, Jason Woods. We'll wrap up the show with this week's installment of Robots Around the World. If you like our show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, CastBox, Player FM, and Podbean. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Behind the Bots, or you can check out our website at www.behindthebots.com. If you like what you hear, tell a friend. We really appreciate your support. Time for this week's Combat Robotics News. I have eight news items for you today. First up, this weekend, the four of us will be moderating three virtual panels with BattleBots builders past and present on behalf of Miami Maker Fair. On Friday, August 15th, I'll be moderating a panel with 2019 semifinalists Paul Ventimiglia, Andrea Galately, Ray Billings, Julie Pitts, and Miles Blow from Byteforce, Witch Doctor, Tombstone, and Death Roll, respectively. I've heard on- of some of them. Good, good. Yeah, I, I hear they're they're kind of popular. I'm I'm interested in learning more about their robots. On Saturday, August 16th, Chris and Lindsay will be moderating a panel with female captains Andrea Galately, Sarah Malian, Jen Herkenroder, Julia Chernashevich, and Lilla Spett from Witch Doctor, Nelly the Ellibot, Hijinks, Ferocity, and Sporkanok. And finally, on Sunday, August 17th, Kyle will be moderating a panel with top combat robotics designers Orion Beach, Emmanuel Carrillo. Isaac Mahlers, and Ellis Ware from Hijinx, Madcatter, Malice, and Pulsar. Each of the sessions will be broadcasted live over video, and tickets are free. Sign up on the Miami Maker Affairs website. Uh, Kyle, Chris, Lindsay, I know we're so excited about these panels. I'm a little, uh, I don't know, I'm a little intimidated by it. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but thoughts, thoughts on, on your respective panels? I heard uh, that your panel has to go flawlessly or they're going to cancel our podcast. (laughs) (laughs) No pressure. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Right. Thanks. I mean, like I'm, I'm kind of naturally a nervous person. So uh, thanks very much for putting that thought in my head. I, uh, I I mean, I really heard that actually that Ray has it out for you. So, (laughs) so good luck. Godspeed. I was going to say, uh, of those people, you know, Miles and Julie and Ray are the only ones we have never interviewed before. And Miles and Julie seem lovely and charming. And Ray, by all accounts, is the nicest villain that has ever existed. So, like, you're going to be fine. Well, technically, I, I've spoken to Ray before, you know, you know, uh, at uh, at the Orlando uh, Maker Fair, and um, and he was he was on the panel, and he didn't bite, so that was really great, you know. Uh, <laughs> uh, 
Um, so yeah, yeah, about I'm, that. You I'm, did. I'm, you have been on a panel with Ray Billings before. That's right. Yeah, I think I think my next step is is going to actually ask him to be on the show. <laughs> we should do <laughs> that. Know? We've been too scared to ask Ray Billings to be on this show for too long. Let's just bite the bullet and do it. I believe the hype. I, I believe that you know he's he's uh, he's he's evil. No, I'm I'm kidding. Oh, I'm nice. lovely. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I, I don't I don't know why I'm so uh, intimidated to ask. Um, anyway, yeah. So uh, so thanks, guys. Uh, tune in. Your Friday, panel please. is not nearly as intimidating as Chris and Lindsay's panel, though. I mean, like there are some heavy hitters on their panel. I yeah. am just excited, A, to talk to everybody because everyone on that list are amazing people, but B, because now I can throw in a question to Jen on hijinks and maybe corner her on this panel and give us some details about hijinks. She's not giving you anything, Lindsay. Let's be honest. It's not going to happen. Okay, she but might. I might learn like hypnotism between now and then, and I don't know if like that works over Wi-Fi yeah. and like that's distance. What, maybe that's hijinks' secret weapon. It's <gasps> the first hypnobot. Ooh, do we? What you really need to do is get Sarah, Lilith, and Julia on your side, and just get that robot captain peer pressure involved and maybe they can help you get an <laughs> iota of information about that bot. <laughs> i just want one iota i'm not even asking for that much kyle i i feel like you have a pretty you know steep hill to climb uh you're going to be talking to some of the top designers in the sports like uh are you are you sharing any of our anxiety at all no i am so excited to talk like just fully get nerdy, get deep, get, we're not going to make this like safe for anybody that doesn't understand mechanics and design. And like, I want to get into full nerd mode, CAD mode, just like discussing variables, discussing exactly like how much force input you're going to be putting into things. Like I, I cannot wait to get into minutia with all of these designers um, right now, what I'm trying to do is is get one more just generative design guru in on this panel, and then I'll feel like it'll be complete. But right now, I can't complain about having Orion Beach, who's like already designed a top-notch top 16 battle bot. Uh, Emmanuel Carrillo, Isaac Mailers, and Ellis Ware. I mean, these are like just top of the food chain battle bots designers and just all around mechanical designers in this sport uh, i am so excited to sit down and talk to them about their design philosophy and just really get into the nerdy nerdy details about what it's like to design build and finally like put out a heavyweight you heard it kyle is promising a very saucy panel this sunday so uh i guess tune in on the internet yeah august 17th tune in to kyle's nine hour panel with design <laughs> <laughs> Bring bring that that forty five dollar calculator that they made you buy in eleventh grade. <laughs> in related news, if you're looking for more panels and interviews with combat robotics builders, you're in luck. RoboNerd TV is launching this Sunday on YouTube with a packed lineup of content. New episodes will premiere at seven p.m. every day next week. Check out details on RoboNerd's Facebook page. Can I just on jump a- in real quick? I was really yeah. upset when the Facebook group called a group where we all pretend to be at BattleBots filming turned into a group where we all pretend to be at RoboNerd. 
<laughs> okay. I was a little mad about it because like I've never been to RoboNerd. I've never wanted to go to RoboNerd. It's just one of those things that happened across the pond. And all of a sudden now I'm in this group where I have to now pretend like I'm at RoboNerd. But now after being in that group for a full week after they've changed the name, I really want to go to RoboNerd. So I'm super excited about <laughs> RoboNerd I mean, TV coming on and I can't wait to participate. Kyle, let's 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 be real. All right, you know, Combat Robotics Internet is run by the Brits, so that doesn't surprise me at all. You know, no, like they, yeah, they, they really kind of run pace. everything. I, I try to be a competitor, but like it's a subpar product compared to what they do. <laughs> On over to the California desert, where Sharkoprian Captain Ed Robinson put his bot up for sale and found a buyer in less than a day, just in time for. Shark Week. Ed offered Sharko for $5,000 cash with the promise that the new buyer would join his team this season as weapons officer, work alongside him in the pits, and take home the bot, spare parts, and Sharko's social media accounts at the end of the competition. Ed says he plans to use the money to move out of his RV and build a self-sufficient compound in the desert. Chris, I know that we talked a lot about uh, us buying Sharko this past week, but alas, somebody swooped in with their bag full of money and uh, and bought that shark out from underneath us. Um, your thoughts on, uh, on on this bot and this sale? Well, actually, I just I read there's a, a new post that just came out. Uh, really? It turns out Shark Corporation was not for sale. Ed had just stumbled across some wild peyote out in the desert <laughs> and heard it all and just imagined this entire scenario. So, um, <laughs> Yeah, it, it really stinks, but uh, you know, it's it's these things happen when you're building self-sufficient housing out in the desert. By the way, this is all just a joke. Um, yeah, we did talk about it. I think that it would have been really cool to own kind of a uh, you know one of the the legacy designs that people identified BattleBots with, and you know, just as a as a you know an opportunity to get there and get a pit experience. I'm really glad that somebody. Um, you know, saw value in that and are going to attend. I'm sure that things will be a little bit different uh, this time around considering uh, COVID-19, but I'm, I'm sure that they're going to get to enjoy a bit of a roller coaster. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I would have actually really loved to have bought this bot. I mean, like, I really like the idea of, of the shark-themed art bot, um, kind of like garage builds um coming to the the show just really beautiful and like fluid um like movement in the box i think that the the design of the shark is really neat i'm, I'm really excited to see you know this this new kind of chomping jaw this this season um and i think that it, this is a really great opportunity for someone to buy like the ultimate sponsor package um you know typically when you sponsor a bot that doesn't it doesn't come with, you know, um, the rights to the bot at the end of the competition. So mm -hmm. I think somebody, somebody is uh, is pretty lucky, and I'm really interested in figuring out who who it is. Um, so I'd I'd love to kind of follow that that announcement and uh, see where where they decide to take the bot in the future. Yeah, we'll stay tuned. Speaking of sharks, the team behind Double Jeopardy celebrated the start of Discovery Channel Shark Week with a reposted video of them shooting a giant inflatable shark in their backyard with a harpoon. The team loaded the harpoon into their bot's firing cylinder and shot it through two hay bales before turning it on the inflatable shark. If you happen to miss the video last year, go check it out this year. And just remember, um, 
Sharks are misunderstood and they are not inherently evil creatures. So don't use any of your robots to actually kill a live shark. Are inflatable sharks evil though, Chris? <laughs> uh, no, actually, I think that they'll, um, they're, they're, well, they're buoyant. That's really, that's all I know about them. <laughs> they're kind of chaotic neutral. Um, so Double Jeopardy used to post a lot of videos of them out in their like horse farm, horse ranch. I don't, I don't know what you'd call it. It's, it's a place where you raise horses. Um, what is a horse ranch? <laughs> I guess. I don't know. Stables, horse stables. At any rate, they'd post a lot of videos of them shooting at hay bales, shooting at different targets. Um, and this is one of those videos, probably my favorite one of those videos. Uh, I really like Double Jeopardy as a concept. I'm super excited about this season. They'll be able to get, what What was that, five shots? Three shots. Three shots. Oh, right, because this is the third time Double Jeopardy's been around, so they've been adding a shot every single time they've been around. Right. So I'm looking forward to season 147. <laughs> yes, Machine Gun Double Jeopardy. Um, but yeah, this was uh, my favorite video of theirs from last year. You know, I I think like as a safety conscious individual, all of these like testing videos make me nervous, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, and there's nothing you can do about that. Like I fully have have faith that these brothers know what they're doing. They're intelligent people. They've got a lot of land. They they're like doing everything right. But golly, that makes me nervous. Just watching them just load up. A, a solid harpoon <laughs> inside of that launching system and firing it into a hay bale. Um, but you know what? It's a fun video to watch. This team's a lot of fun to watch. I don't think they're um, they're ever going to like develop a firing system that can launch a million harpoons at once. But I really love every time they get into the battle box and get that one shot off and maybe even shatter that horizontal spinner into like six pieces like they did that one time. And this is one of my favorite BattleBots teams just because they don't care about the meta, right? They care about designing a bot that will put on an amazing show and give you some really cool damage to look at that you wouldn't see from any other bot. And uh, watching yeah. them destroy an inflatable shark for Shark Week, I'm all for it. Shark Week's one of my favorite times of the year, and I fully support BattleBots supporting Shark Week. Yeah, well, they got a, they got a you know um, quite a challenge ahead of them because they need to go from uh, defeating hay bales to defeating will bales. <laughs> Put that on a T-shirt. I love it. Let's travel next to Northern California, where Tantrum Captain Aaron Hill recently tested the latest version of his bot in a parking lot against the 2019 version of Duck. In a photo posted to Facebook, it looks like Tantrum was able to get under Duck and flip it on its head. On over to Team Scorpios, which revealed it's adopting a brushless weapon system this season made by Castle. The team posted a photo of what appears to be a Castle Mamba XLX electronic speed controller, brushless motor, and a P80 gearbox from BaneBots. 
Typically, going brushless allows a team to cut weight from the bot. It's still unclear what Team Scorpios plans to do with its extra weight. I, I just want to say something. It is so admirable that people out there are still adopting brushless weapon systems and bringing them into their homes. Um, <laughs> there are millions of brushless weapon systems out there. And for just a small donation, you can bring them into the comfort of a loving home. <laughs> and you know, a benefit of that is instead of a tax break that you would get from a normal donation, you get more weight to put into a three eighths inch steel AR front defensive system. For less than a cost of a coffee <laughs> franchise. <laughs> you too can adopt a brushless weapon system. <sighs> Speaking of Scorpios, <laughs> the team is getting into edible team swag this season, commissioning custom printed black and blue M&Ms with the words Scorpios written on them. Speaking of delicious swag, Team Sablaze this week posted photos of a new enamel pin emblazoned with the team's dragon head logo, writing, quote, hooray, pins. No idea. Wait a minute, how wait, a minute wait a minute. Question. Okay. Why would Scorpios choose custom printed M&Ms when Scorpios goes so well with Skittles? That's true. I don't, do they, they do custom no, they Skittles? Do, they don't. Listen, I know, guys, a guy, I know a guy in Venice Beach. He'll get you whatever color Skittle you want. That's not true. <laughs> that's not true. That's a lie. Yeah, his name's Randy. Trust no. me. No. It's not. <laughs> Listen, I'm in the event production industry usually when there's not a global pandemic and i can tell you that like getting custom printed m&ms not that expensive it's actually a pretty cost effective way to do something cool and awesome for your event uh custom skills are not a thing how um how much does it cost to custom print m&ms oh there's a lot of factors involved there are you customizing the colors as well how many letters are you putting on each individual m&m what font are you using but typically speaking you can get a decent like amount of m&ms for your event for under 300 bucks 300 bucks Wait, yeah, like if you're holding a single event, right? Like, let's imagine, Luke, that you're holding a bar mitzvah for your dog. Okay, yeah. And you're inviting over, you know, a whole bunch of people, maybe maybe 60 people. Yeah, well, all of his dog friends. All of his dog friends, they're there to celebrate your dog's coming-of-age ceremony. Okay. And, uh, you know, you could spend about 300 bucks and everybody at that event will have a small bag of custom M&Ms. That's nice. Um, that are, will commemorate, you know, that event, that experience, and the coming of age of your dog. Why does this dog have a cooler bot mitzvah than I had? <laughs> I cannot I speak to the choices your parents made, Lindsay. I'm I'm not here to talk about that. I'm just talking about Luke's dog and the choices that Luke could make. Um, I want to know who who writes the words on every single M and M, and is that safe? I think it's actually a printer. I think it's actually like a sugar printer. Got it. Okay, that sounds safe. <laughs> um, all right. Well, if anyone, uh, also, go if anyone out there needs to talk to Randy, just let me know. I'll get you his number, mm -hmm. and you just tell him that 
You just flew in from Albuquerque. <laughs> uh, so much wrong with that. I'm just going to go back and read this, this uh, Sable story again. Speaking of delicious swag, Team Sables this week posted photos of a new enamel pin emblazoned with the team's dragon head logo writing, quote, hooray, pins. No idea how you can get these in the near future, but look forward to this cool collectible if you get to see the bot in person. And finally, we want to wish a very happy 41st birthday to BattleBots announcer Farouk Tahid. Outside of BattleBots, Farouk is an actor who's appeared on Brooklyn Nine-Nine, The Shield, NCIS, New Girl, and MasterChef, a voice artist for The Bear Bears, The Adventures of Rocky and Bullwinkle, Mass Effect 3 and Bioshock Infinite, and TV host for shows like NBC's Roots Less Traveled. Happy birthday, Farouk. And that's it for this week's news. After the break, our interview with Tracer Captain Jason Woods. This week on the podcast, we have a very special guest, Tracer Builder Jason Woods. Jason competed on the original run of BattleBots as a high schooler with his bot, Rebob, and again in 2009 at an untelevised competition with a middleweight called Slingshot. A few weeks back, you might recall that BattleBots posted a video of a mysterious new heavyweight destroying a pallet in a parking lot. Jason built that bot. We've seen renderings of what it's going to look like and when it's complete, and this thing looks so cool. We are so, so stoked to get into this. Outside of BattleBots, Jason is the founder and CEO of Chimera, a company that makes affordable, portable electric watercraft, something that he calls micro marine mobility. Their best known product is the Chimera Bodyboard, which won a popular science invention of the year award in 2011, first appeared on Shark Tank in 2013, and was invited back for a rare second appearance last year, where Jason ultimately raised half a million dollars from investor Robert Hershevik. We're looking forward to getting into all of these topics in the hour ahead. So welcome to the show, Jason. Hi, guys. Uh, hi, I am so stoked that, uh, that you are joining us um, and so happy that you reached out and said that you wanted to come on the show to talk about this new mysterious bot. Um, I know that a lot of people had a lot of uh, questions about the bot um, after seeing this, this video from, from BattleBots. So um, I'm really glad that you're making kind of your BattleBots debut uh, here on Behind the Bots. Um, I would love to, to get into the original run of the show. Um, so can you take us back to the early 2000s? You're living in the Bay Area. You're a high schooler um, in Napa at the New Technology High School. You know, um, did were you watching BattleBots like at the time? Like, can you kind of take us back to, to that decision uh, to say, like, I think I'm going to build something for this competition? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, New Tech High was was really unique in the in the sense that it was still a prototype at that point. It was basically the first one of its kind that the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation had started up. And what was really interesting about it is it was all combined subjects. So they take math and science and they make it much more applied and everything was project based. So, you know, everyone does, you know, they have a senior project, but at this school, it's got to be, you know, it's your PhD thesis. And 
BattleBots was on at that time, and it was basically the, the coolest thing going. And I just went, I go to a tech school, and what's the coolest senior project I could possibly come up with? And uh, yeah, I decided to take it on without having any idea how I was going to accomplish it. But uh, yeah, so set the goal on building it, and uh, you know, it was it was definitely a, a steep learning curve, and it involved hacksaws in the backyard, and you know, kind of uh, just bodging things together, and you know, begging local companies for for parts and materials, but. Uh, but eventually, yeah, we made it there. I really like the the thinking that went into your your original bot. Um, take us through like that process. Like, how did you design like the weapon system? Think up the weapon system. Um, you know, can you describe describe the uh, the your your first bot? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so the old Comedy Central rules were very different. So back then, you know, the robots were not as powerful. You were basically in the top 50% if you could make it out of your square at that point, you know, because it was just a lot of garage builders and a lot of craziness going on. But, uh, you know, to be brutally honest, I mean, my favorite bot was absolutely Grant Imahara and Deadblow. And I just, I love that robot. And being a point-based system, you know, he just dominated because he could just drive up to any robot and just start hammering away. And he was just scoring points regardless if he was killing the other robot. And I watched this and I just intensely watched all his fights. And I'm like, the only problem is he keeps missing. And I had this idea. I was like, well, what if we put two hammers on it and we swung them horizontally from each front corner? We'd have 280, you know, two separate 180 degree sweeping hammers. There's no way we could possibly miss. So... You know, it was uh, it was very aspirational, and we didn't have much for build skill at that point. But uh, but yeah, it was a it was a unique idea at the time. Anyway, I love it. I love it. I, I really think that that's a cool cool design. Um, I you know, so how did you go about designing this? Like, how did you figure out what components to put into it? Like, how to how to set up you know um, your your motors and your your speed controllers and all of that? Like, how how did how did you like you know actually physically physically build it yeah i mean you know the interesting thing is back then there w there was no community you know like i've been i've been kind of following along in the shadows of the community but uh it's definitely built up into a much more um cohesive amount of information obviously the internet's come a long way since 03 but uh but yeah, uh, you know, it was a combination of, you know, very early days of the internet and trying to look up the little bit of information that there was and studying, you know, every behind the scenes clip of the shows, trying to see, you know, what motors do they have in there and, you know, what kind of components are they doing and a lot of trial and error and that kind of thing. And it was, it, you know, most of it was driven by what can we get, you know, like your motors weren't, you know, it wasn't like I was going on online and ordering up some mag motors. It was more, uh, what can we find in the junkyard that we could bolt into this thing that would turn a lawnmower wheel that we've uh, bolted onto this drive shaft, so. That's cool, yeah. Um, I'd love to hear about your experience with the competition, you know, from your perspective. So you show up, you drive, you know, across the uh, Golden Gate Bridge to San Francisco to, um, to compete at the show. Like, what was it like like stepping foot into the the pit area for the first time, um, setting up your table, like kind of getting getting the bot ready. Uh, if only it was that that simple. I, I mean, it was definitely festival. I mean, it was like Burning Man on Treasure Island. It'd probably be the the closest description I could give to it. But yeah, it just was a zoo. And uh, of course, you know, our robot was kind of like half working on a good day. And uh, yeah, it was it was. Uh, the biggest problem we had is we got there and we didn't read the rules carefully enough and you had to have someone over 18 on the team. 
<laughs> it didn't occur to us that they weren't going to let us in the pits unless we had an adult <laughs> with us. So I ended up having to you know, rotate out, you know, because the guys on my team had had put in all this time and I wasn't going to make them sit out. So I basically had to sit on the sidelines of a lot of it so that we could have an adult because they only allowed you four people, I think. So we had to have an adult on the team. So one of us had to pretty much sit out. So that that was kind of a bummer. And then we got to safety and we were having all kinds of trouble. And uh, actually, God, I can't remember his name at the moment, but uh, the builder from Ronin actually helped us out and uh, helped us get through safety because our radio, I forget, it was something like our fail save or something didn't work correctly. He actually stepped up and let us, actually our first match was driven with his radio. So you know, it definitely was was early days of uh, of that community support, and you know, everyone kind of trying to put on the best show we can. But uh, but yeah, it was uh, it was definitely a an eye opening experience, and just the the scale of it was was just jaw dropping. You know, just the Comedy Central banners, and it just was it was crazy. Yeah, I I you know, like the energy of that original run, like from what we've heard, is just so cool. You know. Um, if you can pass safety, you're going to fight, you know, um, and it's single elimination, like lose once and you're out. Like, and um, like it just, it, it sounds like, like such a cool experience, like so many garage builds, like so many kids like you, you know, also there um, like, you know, we, we've, we've talked to Paul Ventimiglia, like he was also a high schooler when he competed on the original round of the show. And um, like just that feeling like, you know, kid their parents can can build something and um come up and you know fight fight robots i think is is really special and and cool um well and just being around a group of people like i didn't realize i didn't fit in until i was there kind of thing you know like mm -hmm. I, I didn't fit in in life until i was there and i was surrounded by all these people that i really had something deeply in common with and yeah. that we were allowed to like fully express our crazy and it was totally embraced was uh, it was really a life changing like I can't go back to my normal life after this kind of moment. So, yeah. Do you, Do you ever think like um, if Greg and Trey hadn't built BattleBots or you know Mark Thorpe hadn't built Robot Wars before that you know and you never went to compete um af, you know at high, in in high school like how your life might be different today? I, I can't even imagine my life if that didn't happen because it it literally was then and there that I just. I knew there was no way after being there and seeing that and experiencing that level of creativity and execution at that level is as campy as it was that there was no way I could just go to college and just learn something. And, you know, I just, the math on it just didn't make sense for me to go in that kind of debt. And then I would come away with a degree that would allow me to go get some job to go work for somebody else. And I'd be qualified to do what they tell me. And I just, I knew I had to pursue something creative and I it just, it basically drove everything that came from there. That's really cool. Did you know that you were a builder, you know, before you went on BattleBots? Like, did you have a sense um, that like, hey, I'm gonna build stuff for, for a living? I was not a builder. I was a deconstructor, like, you know, I uh, from, a, from <laughs> yeah. a very early age. Yeah, no, I was good at taking stuff apart. It was just the putting it back that, uh, you know, because when I grew up, like, we were super poor and like, you know, our, the way we got around, you know, we, we didn't have one car. We had two really 
not so nice cars that we would keep one just for parts. So like some of my first memories are dismantling cars and, you know, scrapping parts off of them to fix our other broken car and that kind of stuff. So, you know, unfortunately my parents didn't realize that once they taught me to take a car apart, then I was like, well, what is everything else made of? So I just started disassembling <laughs> anything with screws in it, which, uh, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, a couple years later, you helped your brother with Slingshot. Um, I'd love to hear the story of Slingshot because uh, its uh, its story is also mysterious. Um, so this is the 2009 competition. Um, can you kind of talk us through that that build? Spoiler alert, Paul Ventimiglia wins that one too. Just, just <laughs> like, uh, like nobody even talks about that. Like, yeah, it happened and he won, of course, you know, he was there. But, uh, but yeah, so my brother was in high school and, you know, he just kind of didn't know where he was going, didn't have a direction. And I just, at that point, I was 20, early 20s. And I, uh, my first company, like I had a day job, but my first company was, you know, building small underwater inspection robots. You know, it's basically like an underwater drone, but drones didn't exist yet. So we were, you know, at the forefront, you know, it was basically just me and a, and a group of local builders, you know, that uh, would do a lot of the, you know, the machining and that kind of stuff for me. And I would do, you know, final assembly and manage the sales and that kind of thing. And so I was pretty set up to make stuff at that point. And uh, yeah, I just called them up and was, hey, I got word there. They're putting together this high school competition. Do you want to get a team together and I'll, you know, help you guys build the robot and kind of went from there. Um, so can you describe Slingshot and, you know, what was the experience building like a second metal weight, you know, now having several years of experience building other things, including these, these underwater robots? Oh, I mean, yeah, just CAD alone. You know, at that point, I, of course it was, you know, AutoCAD 2004 or something. So it was pretty crude, but, but yeah, being able to just be able to draw out, you know, cause Version one is hacksaw. Version two is you know campy CAD and you know flat plates cut on a water jet, that kind of stuff. So, it uh, it was the early beginnings of of next level build, and I took on something you know pretty aggressive. It basically slingshot was like a scaled down middleweight Ziggy, basically a four walk, a four bar flipper, and uh, you know it, a lot of time, a lot of energy went into that, and uh, more than really was probably necessary, just because it was me spending a lot of time with my brother and trying to you know, teach him from the ground up the skills and stuff of how to build it. But, but yeah, it was, it was really a great experience, the whole build process and everything else. The thing that fascinates me the most uh, about Slingshot is that, um, you know, like the BattleBots wiki, like has so little information on it. So this is your kind of chance to write the wiki. Um, do you, do you remember how the bot did in that competition? Um, it's like win loss record, like who it faced, like that kind of stuff. Oh yeah, we won. <laughs> good good i heard that you beat brutality in 2009 we yeah. totally did yeah it's <laughs> just make sure, you know uh <laughs> you know I, I couldn't tell you exactly what it was and you know unfortunately there's no video of it and I, i've pleaded with greg for years to, to allow me to go in the garage and dig through and find it but uh yeah i mean i I think we won three fights. We ended up losing to a, a middleweight Waiachi. I think it was like Warrior Clan was like a like an early version of it or something. It was very similar to that robot, but in the end, we ended up losing to uh, to uh, to the Waiachi guys. But uh, but yeah, it did really well. We uh, we had some dumb problems, like we uh, uh, basically forgot to cross link the batteries. Basically, is what ended up happening. So it mm -hmm. it ran totally fine. It tested totally fine. But when the batteries got out of balance, right? So we had a battery pack on the left, battery pack on the right, and there wasn't a cross ground. 
So when you put in your, your safety switch, you're switching on the power side, on the positive side. And we didn't put a main ground cable between the two packs. So what happened when the batteries get out of balance, it basically starts pulling power through your receiver wire and then it burns things out and then it goes haywire. But uh, yeah, the real, the, the main claim to fame with that robot though, I don't know if anybody had middleweight scale uh, BattleBot in 09 that was all brushless and that, that robot had all brushless drivetrain. It was adapted off the, the thrusters I was actually using in uh, underwater robots at that point. So we were pretty excited to, to prototype that out, but yeah. Wow, that's really cool. That's really cool. So so 2009, you're building these underwater robots and you're starting to think about the idea of an electric bodyboard. Is that right? Like, you know, can you take us through your origin story of Chimera? Uh, yeah, I mean, so things were great. I mean, you know, there was only like two very small companies in the world that were producing these submersible robots to go down and, you know, do inspections and that kind of stuff. So you don't have to send a diver in. Unfortunately, it's a very small market. And uh, yeah, very quickly, a Malaysian company got a hold of one of my robots and they just started mass producing it at a scale and a, and a level that I couldn't hope to achieve. So they basically took what I was doing and just crushed me out of existence and you know learned some hard lessons along the way. But I decided, okay, well, I have this, this box of skills now and I, I'm comfortable with brushless and all of these different things that we were doing at that time. What do I do with it now? Because uh, you, know, you didn't go to college, buddy. So time to, time to man up and figure something out. So uh, I wanted something that was gonna be much more mass marketable. I wanted something that was gonna have a, a broad consumer base, but I also wanted something that wouldn't require a lot of marketing that really when people saw it, they would just go, whoa, what is that? And would just kind of capture their attention. So yeah, I mean, I had I owned a boat at that point, and I found out what a total pain in the neck it was. And then uh, yeah, I decided to sell the boat off and to design something I could you know fit in the back of a hatchback. That's cool. I, you know, you really created this category. So can you describe the Chimera bodyboard um, to someone who maybe hasn't seen it before? Yeah. So I mean. Basically, we call it the bodyboard. So think of a boogie board, like a foam boogie board, except with an electric jet ski stuck in the back of it. That's <laughs> and that, that's basically we've never had a good description for it because when I was trying to explain this back in the day of what a, excuse me, what I was going to try to build, people just looked at me like I was crazy. You know, like, you're going to build a boogie board jet ski. You were literally a nutcase. And I was like, yeah, I've been told that before. So uh, I set to it, and basically I just wanted to create the smallest, lightest, most compact thing possible to move a person around in the water. My drive wasn't to create a jet ski. I wasn't trying to make something that would go 100 miles an hour, just something that, you know, that was smaller and lighter and easier than a kayak, but was, was self-propelled, and nothing like that existed, so... That's really cool. Um, yeah, I, I, I would love to hear about um, the process of building the prototype. So you, you get the idea in your head and you go into your shop and you start cutting apart bodyboards. Is that right? And putting motors in them? Like, can you kind of describe like how, how the first one got built? Yeah, I think that's pretty close. Yeah, I think we, we literally just started finding things that would float and cutting them apart and, you know, stuffing parts in them and that kind of thing. And, uh, you know, the original ones were all gas powered because, you know, look at the old school battle bots, you know, battery check just wasn't there yet. So all the original ones that I worked on for a lot of years were all gas powered. Um, I've actually still got some crazy compact little motors tucked around, you know, all a ice wave. Um, 
But basically, right about the time I had something that you know I could have started to sell, the EPA came out and changed all the regulations on emissions. And you start looking through what it would take to pass these regulatory compliances, and it was just millions of dollars to pass your evaporative emission compliance testing. And I just went, okay, mm. this, this isn't going to work. But at that time, that's right when you know batteries started to get better. So my background, obviously, up to that point was all electric anyway. So we pivoted, you know, and started working on, uh, you know, started working on electric drive systems, and it took a long time, but uh, you know, eventually we did get to something that that really worked, and I was happy with. And then you hit the uh, what now phase, <laughs> you know, where you you built this thing and it works, and uh, what do you do now? You know, was kind of the thing because. I didn't have to find a lot of clients before I did, you know, with, with the robots, it was a really tight knit, you know, group of people that were, you know, worked on oil rigs and that kind of stuff. So it was kind of self-marketing, but I had this thing and I just kind of sat on it and didn't know where to go with it. And then one day just kind of out of the blue, cause it had been sitting in the garage for, you know, six months or a year or something at that point. I just went out there and I just said, okay, I'm just going to take pictures of this thing and I'm just going to go send it to a tech magazine blog, you know, XYZ and just and see what happens. So I sent it over to, to Gizmag and uh, yeah, they ran with it, you know, and it got picked up like three or four different, you know, different uh, news outlets started uh, talking about it and this crazy kid building this crazy boogie board jet drive thing in his garage. And uh, yeah, it seemed like next thing you knew, you know, popular science was calling me. Yeah, that's really cool. I mean, that's it's a pretty big leap, you know, to say like this is an invention of the year and it's a garage build, like, you know, you've built a prototype. It's not a company yet, right? Like it's just a really cool thing that that exists in the world. It's an invention, you know? Um, like did did you do do you remember like that that phone call with with popular science? Like kind of them talking through like why they they had selected yours out of the many, you know, thousands of cool American inventions that year? I will literally never forget that phone call because I thought it was a crank call. I, I literally thought, you know, I was like, oh, yeah, and a prince is going to send me a million dollars, right? Like, I mean, literally, I'm the blue because, I mean, I didn't yeah. apply for this. They just they saw it and they were like, this thing is awesome. And they called me up and they're like, you won. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Get out of here. I didn't win anything. Sure enough, they're like, well, we're sending a crew to your house. So maybe that'll let it sink in for you. And I was like, <laughs> okay, uh, this is this is happening. Yeah, so the next phase is even weirder. Now you've got like just massive exposure and you've got all these people beating down your door going, this thing is awesome. And you know, you're getting all these rescue crews from all around the world that do life-saving operations. And they're like, I gotta tell you, you know, and they're just telling you all these crazy stories of people drowning and where this thing could have helped. And it, you know, and you're still just a person working in your garage at that point. And you, you know, it's it's a little overwhelming because I knew that it was gonna take some pretty massive investment to to build something like this. You know, there's a there's a lot of stuff to take something from a prototype to a product that's gotta happen, you know, from product liability insurances and you know, just manufacturing capacity and all just there's so many levels of stuff that have to happen. But yeah, you know, then you also run the risk when you create a bunch of demand for something and you don't have a supply, then you, you know, you're basically inviting people to to come and you know meet that demand. So yeah, yeah it, was, it was a crazy time for sure. Yeah, definitely. Um, you ran a Kickstarter and then went on Shark Tank. Can you talk about kind of like the decision to do one and then the other, like to to help raise money for for this this company? Yeah, I mean, you know, the hope was that uh, you know that the Kickstarter would get through, but our our goal was was crazy. I think it was like a quarter million dollars or something that we were that we needed to raise because the reality was. It didn't do any good for me to raise fifty thousand dollars because I just wouldn't be able to deliver. You know, and even at two hundred fifty thousand, there's just 
it would have been enough to go and get more. You would have had enough to start with, but I don't know that I had enough experience really at that point to, to get it across the threshold. And then, mm. um, you know, and then Shark Tank calls and they're like, so how would you like to be on Shark Tank? And I'm just like, <laughs> this another crazy crank phone call. And I'm like, uh, well, yeah, if, if this isn't a fake phone call, yeah, I absolutely would, would love to be on the show. And then we missed the window for that season. And then, you know, it basically drug out for another year in limbo not knowing kind of where to go or what to do. And, you know, I just, I just didn't really have the business chops at that level to, to go out and to, to conquer the world and raise the money. And, you know, I was, I was just a person and I had no idea other than I built this cool thing that I was really proud of and, you know, liked a lot. And uh, eventually Shark Tank happened and I went on and I was just, I was so pumped. You know, I was like, here's Shark Tank, the, the biggest, you know, it's like the, it's the Super Bowl of business startup, right? Like, 12 million people watching an episode back in those days and uh like here you go it's gonna be crazy and i got just torn to pieces <laughs> so yeah i, I have to say like i i empathize with your story so much um so this <clears throat> this isn't a story like i tell i'll talk about a lot <laughs> i don't even think kyle knows about this story so kyle you're gonna hear something new but um uh, the very first time I ever pitched my startup, um, <clears throat> I was in the same pitch as uh, um, the the founder of Uber, and um, <laughs> we were we were pitching together at the Open Angel Forum, and I had no idea that this was like the biggest pitch of my life. It was literally my first one. Yeah. and got up and like bombed so hard like so so hard like in front of like everybody in the entire valley like um it was horrific my own horror like i just yeah it was like it was really bad um and uh, one one of the guys, uh, what is his name? He ended up becoming a shark. Like he's the I don't know the tech shark or whatever. Um, he Are like um, no no no. no. Um, the other guy. Oh my god, this is gonna kill me. Um, he's like he's on every once in a while. Oh. Um, but uh, but yeah, like I had no idea it was gonna be the biggest pitch of my life, and I totally bombed it. It was bad. Um, and there were like ten of us selected to pitch that night, and uh, you know. The organizer gets up and goes, hey, you know, uh, just just this week, I heard from this cool little startup I think you're going to like a lot. It's called Uber Cab. Uh, like, how about you get up and show us what you got? And, uh, you know, he goes up there and he's like, yeah, so we've raised $50,000 so far and, you know, angel investment. And, uh, you know, we'd love to show you our app and, you know, kind of talk to you about our vision of the world. And, um, like, we're all, we're all sitting in the back and we're watching this pitch and we're like, this it's a, it's a taxi cab app. Like this is, this is like the worst thing I've ever seen in my life. Like this is, this is, you know, like there's no way this, yeah. this guy's bombing just like us, you know? And yeah. I never seen it before. Like this guy stands up at the end of the pitch and he's like, I'll write you a $50,000 check right now. And like, he's got his like, like checkbook in the air. I like, I'd never seen that before. And then this other guy's like, I'll write you a hundred thousand dollar check. Like that he like raised like a quarter million dollars in the room in like 10 minutes. And it was like, and every single one of those people, like, are they've now turned it into like multi-million, like hundred million dollar like investments. Like, you know, first round capitals there, Sequoia Capital was there, like everybody was there, right? Um, and like we were, we saw it, we watched it, and um, like, and and then 
I became so much better at pitching like later down the road. Um, but I never got into the big room ever again. Do you know what I mean? Like, um, like, like getting that shot. Like, I mean, I wish that I had like a year of pitching experience and then I could like kind of get in that room. I feel like I would have done better, but, um, yeah, no, I, I definitely crash and burn like really hard. Um, <laughs> that's amazing. Like, yeah. wow. You were there for the, the first 50 K of Uber. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. It, it was wild. It was wild. Um, but you, you got a second shot at the big room, right? So you came back a couple years later. I'm curious, like what happened between like that first appearance on Shark Tank and then the decision to come back on the show? Well, I, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding with people of what Shark Tank is, you know, because it, people like to play it, play along at home and it becomes to the general person watching it that isn't in business. I think they think that it's, it's kind of like a game show, you know, and there's like a giant check at the end and it's not like that at all, actually. And actually the best thing that can happen to you on shark tank, in my humble opinion, after the fact is getting torn apart with a good idea mm. in, in retrospect, like you would never think, but something amazing happened. So when you film this thing, it doesn't actually air for like nine months, right? So you've got to just sit and stew in it for nine months and you can't talk to anybody until this thing airs. Like you just got to sit quietly and fold your hands and just wait for it to, to be over. So the night that thing aired, it went crazy. Like it, I had so much, I, you know, the internet is such a terrible place, but yet I got to tell you, I don't think there was any mean spirited anything towards me. I got torn apart so hard by those guys that the entire world basically was like, Hey, I think that's actually kind of a good idea. And then the phone started ringing. So wow. basically what happened, you know, for the nine months until it aired, it was absolute brutal. You know, you're just in a very dark place, just waiting for this thing. And you just, you know, everyone's going to see you fail on national TV, that kind of thing. And then it happens. And then, you know, I had offers, you know, a stack of offers better than what I was asking them for on the show, like immediately after, because people watching it went, Hey, I think that's a, that's a novel idea, but you know, obviously it takes money to make money. You know, when you're trying to build a, a, a company to manufacture something, it, you know, there's a lot of upfront investment to be able to, you know, just like any other business, you know, it takes money upfront, which I didn't have. And, uh, but yeah, so we were able to, to find it elsewhere and started rolling. And then, and then the decision a couple of years later to go back on Shark Tank, like, was it like out of a sense of redemption? Like, yeah, I've made it. I'm here to like show you that I've made it, you know, um, like, did they like how how did how did that happen? Uh, they keep track, you know. They keep tabs with you. You know, they like yeah. to they like to know because I mean it's to their credit. You know, there's a lot of businesses that come out of there. I'm you know a member of that group, that alumni of you know Shark Tank survivors that that all communicate. You know, there's a business support group that kind of goes on behind the scenes after the fact of people. But uh, yeah, I mean not in a spiteful way. You know, you know Mark Cuban called me a entrepreneur and you know told me I, I didn't have any business trying to run a business because I didn't know anything about it. And you know what? Humility is a very important thing in life, I feel like. And you know what? He was right. I didn't. I didn't know anything about running the business at that level. I didn't know anything about raising money. I just had this cool thing. And uh, once you get over the, uh, the the pain of, you know, taking it that brutally, because everyone that had ever seen what I built was just nothing but praise and nothing but, you know, sunshine and rainbows. And then you get hit in the head with a hammer on national TV. You know, once that pain fades, you realize, yeah, he's right. And I've got to go find other people with other experiences and other talents that are outside of what I do 
And, you know, that's how you put a winning team together, you know, so it, uh, it, it all worked out, but yeah, the decision to go back really, you know, it, it was kind of to thank them really. I mean, it wasn't, uh, everyone thought I was crazy. Everyone that knew me, like, you're going to go put yourself through that again. <laughs> it, it, not, not to lie. Like when you're waiting to go in there to pitch, I'm going to tell you, it is, it is the most nerve wracking, stressful thing you will ever. <laughs> I just had three children in under two years. Shark Tank was way harder, <laughs> way harder. I mean, just the stress and the anxiety and the buildup for that long. Cause there's a lot of parallels to BattleBots. You know, you spend all this time and all this money building up this robot, and you go in there and you got three minutes. You know, and the robot may come out in a hefty bag. You know, and it's you've got years of your life invested in this thing that you're just so committed to, and you may just absolutely get torn apart. And you don't know what's going to happen, and you feel like the world is going to end if you don't succeed. And what one behind the scenes that you know that no one talks about. See the season one when I was on. I was the very first person to pitch for the season. Really? So, wow. so they were, that was their warm up punching bag basically is what happens. And uh, basically behind the scenes, what happens is when you walk down that hallway, you walk out of the carpet and there's a mark on the carpet and you stand there and they get all their establishing shots. The worst part of Shark Tank is that like where you just, you have to walk out, hit your mark and you just stand there for what feels like three days staring these guys down. And then you have to, on demand, they say go, and you've got to deliver that first like 60 seconds of here's my pitch, here's where I'm from, and what I'm looking for. And they're they're you know it's real. They're they're writing all that information down, so at least they get that standard information. But yeah, it's 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 crazy experience. But I'll tell you, I, I'm definitely better for it for both experiences. But uh, I'm, I'm glad I went back. I mean, it's it's nothing but positive, and to come out of it with the redemption, you know, it's it's about as good an outcome as you could have had. So. I, I'm curious, you know, did you feel more confident going in the second time? Um, how did you prepare the second time versus the, the first time? Um, step one, bring my business partner with me. Because <laughs> you know, he's the, uh, you know, he's the mastermind behind, uh, you know, he just was so good and so Johnny on the spot. He's so quick with the numbers. I mean, all I had to do was stand there and be like, look at what I built. You know, I just like Vanna White in the thing pretty much the second time around. So yeah, coming in with some, uh, some real business firepower was, uh, is a good move. And just having two people in general, you know, they can't just, can't just go in after you. But the biggest thing is first time I had a prototype and, uh, you know, the framework of a business plan. I wouldn't even call it a business plan. Second time, I think we, you know, we had a million dollars in sales at that point. So you know, it's it's a little better position to try to negotiate from the second time around. Yeah, yeah. I, I'd love to kind of zoom out a little bit and um and, and understand like so like there's so many people who know how to build amazing things who listen to this show. So like people like you, um, and they build really cool prototypes or they build gadgets, you know, at home. And like, there's such a huge gulf between building something amazing that works like a prototype and then getting to a million dollars in sales. You know, um, do you have, do you have advice for, I guess, maybe like your younger self, if you're going to go back and talk to yourself or advice for, for other builders like you, you know, who are making cool things in their garage and are thinking that there might be a market for them? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, I mean, you look at education, right? And it, it's very compartmentalized. So you've got electrical engineering and mechanical engineering and 
what I what I really love about BattleBots is how it bridges so many different disciplines, right? And then there's there's gap, huge rifts between electrical engineering and mechanical engineering, and then you look at the gaping chasm between engineering and manufacturing and business because it, it there I mean it's two diatomically opposed things, right? And I I find for myself personally the more the more talented I am in one area, like I have to give up in other areas, right? So like the more creative I am and the more mechanically capable I become, the less adept with a PL you're likely to be kind of thing. So I think we, we don't teach enough of it. You know, I, I don't think there's any class you could take out there of how to be a successful, you know, entrepreneur, but but maker entrepreneur, like how do you bridge that gap from being someone who makes something into being able to produce something? And I think that it's really important to get people on track with, you know, just, you know, doing analyzation of the market, right? So for me, it was my epiphany moment, right? When I built Chimera was sitting on a park bench up at the lake one day and there was 200 people on the lake or uh, standing on the shoreline and out of the lake, there was two boats as far as you could see, right? So step one in becoming successful is identifying who your market is. So for me that day, I'm looking at these 200 people who drove all the way up to this lake to sit on the shoreline and there's two people out on boats. I went right here, right now, this is my target market that I'm gonna build something for. So mm -hmm. I think to be successful, I think you have to kind of work it that direction. You know, if you're a, a solution looking for a, looking for a problem, I think that's where a lot of people get stuck. I think people build a lot of cool stuff, but I think you've really got to build something. You've got to identify the problem first, identify who's going to buy it, and then kind of work your way through some basic business principles of, you know, how are you going to market it? You know, really think through that process because the other stuff actually isn't as hard as you think. I think the biggest holdback for me was just the, the fear, you know, and if there's any, if there's only one thing I could tell somebody is, getting past that jumping off the cliff fear is actually what holds most people back because you know i don't think we we teach people enough that it's okay to fail you know that because we just feel like if i don't succeed we're gonna die you know it took me years to get over that to get past the point where i could take a risk because i'm very risk averse and most engineers are i feel like we like to calculate and figure out what the you know what the load calculation is on a beam much less you know go ask a bunch of people that we know to give us money to try to create a business that may totally fail, you know? So getting past that fear, putting together a really good plan, identifying your market is really, you know, key strategies up front before you even start building the thing, really. Yeah, yeah, totally. That's 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 so true. I um so you sent over a couple of videos of some interesting other prototypes uh gadgets that you've built. Um I love all of them. Uh I'd love to like learn about all of them. So like uh the first the uh, first one you sent was this uh, robo stroller. Um so let me let me see if I can I can do the elevator pitch. So uh you have a baby stroller and um it's awful to push it. Like why don't you have the stroller like why don't you ride on top of the stroller with your kid, right? Like um how did how how did that happen? Like, how did you build it? Um, can you tell us more about that that build? Yeah, I, I, basically the robo stroller got built because I was just freaking out. You know, I found out that we were having our first kid, and uh, yeah, like, where do you put all this nervous energy, right? Because like, I'm already like trying to run this business and do all this stuff, and now we're having a baby on top of it. I just like I needed something else just to kind of work on, so I built this. Uh, we'd actually gone to Disney World. And, uh, you know, you go past the, the parking lots of strollers, right? And as you go past these, past these parking lots, I'm like, there's all these scooters and there's all these strollers, 
but there's no scooter stroller. So <laughs> that's, that's kind of where it came from. Uh, ultimately, it's not getting built, like just liability alone. This thing, is, <laughs> you know, my wife only let me use it like twice pretty much, but it was it was a lot of fun to go drive around through crowds and just have people stare. The, the side eye that you get when people are watching you ride by on this, this powered stroller scooter thing, you're just like, like it looks legit enough to where they're not sure if I bought that somewhere. There's like, <laughs> no like obvious duct tape on it kind of thing. So I love that. Honestly, that's like my favorite thing in the world though, is just getting that that weird, just like confusion of people. <laughs> they just don't quite know what to make of what I've done is when I'm actually happiest. If they if they like what I did, I'm like, thank you. I appreciate it. But I really like it when I'm they're just a little bit confused. <laughs> yeah. And then and then the 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 underwater Iron Man. Uh so like did you like take off like the the motor from a bodyboard and then you became the bodyboard by kind of strapping it onto your feet? Like, how does that work? Well, yeah, I mean, you know, I did all submersible stuff for a long time and, uh, you know, it, there's all sorts of applications for, you know, submersible propulsion systems. And we do a lot of consulting and that kind of thing for, uh, you know, marine, you know, propulsion systems, that kind of stuff. And uh, yeah, that basically was like, well, I've already built the smallest, lightest thing to go on the water. I was like, what if I just used myself as the hull? So I basically built, you know, it's basically rocket boots. <laughs> cool. It's a, it's an integrated submersible jet drive that you can, it's actually, if you saw it out of the water, it kind of looks more like a unicycle, except you're in a swimming position, right? So you're horizontal. But if you imagine a unicycle, it actually has like a bike seat, like a, a plastic bike seat on the top of it. And then you have foot pegs and yeah, it's a, it's basically just a jet drive that you wear kind of thing. So that's kind of cool. crazy. That's cool. And then the, uh, the four wheeled robotic bike, you know, can you uh, tell me more about that? Yeah, the uh, the monster truck robot bike. Yeah, it was uh, that was just one where uh, you know Chimera is starting to to branch out into terrestrial endeavors. That uh, spoiler, there's a, a new website update and some new stuff that we're working on coming out. And that was just kind of a, a fun project I did. You know, I was really starting to get more uh, hands-on experience working with sensor motor applications and you know, really kind of getting my, uh, getting my hands dirty with FOC programming and that kind of stuff. Cause I just, it was new and just kind of coming around at that point. I just kind of wanted to dig into it and have something to test. And I was like, well, I should build something crazy. So I decided to build a giant, you know, like monster truck, fat tire, electric quad bike. So it's basically 4,000 watt hub motors in the four corners of it. But Rather than, you know, doing the smart thing and putting steering on it, I decided, well, let's let's build it like a battle bot. And I, like, actually <laughs> set it up for skid steer. So this thing is like a giant four-wheel fat tire bike with skid steer electric. Yeah, it, just kind of a crazy thing. And actually, fun fact, some of the parts in, ended up getting reused out of that for our, for our current build. Um, all right. So, Jason, I want to get into Tracer. Ah, oh, making the light of day, finally. You, um, all right, so you got promoted by BattleBots themselves in a super sneaky video. Um, I'm going to give a big shout out to my co-host, Luke, the intrepid investigator slash journalist that he is, went on a mad search throughout all of the internet and finally kind of unmasked you figured out <laughs> where this parking lot was that you filmed this spot and tracked down your company and tracked down you. So mad props to Luke for doing all that. Like that was, 
I just got to tell you, listening because I got someone sent me the podcast. I started listening to it. I'm just listening. I'm just going, how in the how could they pot? wait? And then you started telling me stuff I didn't know, like that I fought Jeff Vasquez back in the day. Like I ha- I had totally forgotten that it was Debbot that I lost to because that that <laughs> fight was to make it to TV, right? And like I had a deep seated grudge with him for years because he denied me making it onto Comedy Central TV. Luckily, he got ripped to pieces by the Pack Raptors in the next fight. But uh, <laughs> I totally forgotten that. I, I go back to the archives and start listening, and just I applaud you, sir, for your skills in, in being able to figure that out. Because I did kind of think about it when I was editing that video that there was signs in the background. But uh, well played, well played. Yeah. Uh, just so everybody knows, the the deep secret that behind the bots holds is Luke's mad investigative skills. Like the messages when they started coming across my Facebook Messenger, when he like determined he was obsessed with this video and figuring out what it was, I was like, well, it, he's gonna get this in like six hours. And sure enough, like four hours later. Yeah. He solved the entire mystery and was like, all right, this is the whole thing. And then like two days later, he was like, I think I'm going to get him on the podcast. I was like, yes. Uh, (laughs) So could you describe for us, considering, you know, this is an audio medium, uh, Tracer. Tell us about Tracer. So uh, Tracer is everyone's favorite robot. It is a four-wheel vertical spinner. I know. I'm just, the eye rolls, I can feel them already. I know, I know. But uh, we're doing a lot of innovative stuff with this robot. It, it it has kind of a, like, if you look at the profile of it, it's got kind of a B-52 wing slice. Like, if you sliced a segment out of a wing, it's got a lot of curvature to it. Uh, the front face of it is just a complete featureless blank slate, basically. There's nothing really to get a hold of. Um, yeah, I mean, we just really wanted something that was really sleek, had a good profile, and there's no box involved. So that was one of the, you know, we knew if we were going to build a four-wheel vertical spinner, one, it better be a very scary piece of machinery, and two, like, we were going to have to bring something new. Like, we are going to have to bring some new design ideas to it, and we definitely have on this robot. So it's, uh, yeah. So um, let's get into some specifications real quick. Let's talk about, so it's a single tooth vertical disc. Yeah, so we we went with a just ridiculously, I believe the technical term is chonky uh, rotor on this thing. So it's, uh, it's a two and a half inch thick AR steel uh, asymmetrical rotor. Um, and we just went, you know, it was really interesting because I've never built a spinner before. So this was kind of a, a new endeavor for me. So I had to go do some research into okay, well, generally we can make any shape and then I can find the CG and CAD and, you know, kind of working backwards, you know, how to how to create an asymmetrical rotor like that. And uh, then I got to find out how hard it is to get, you know, two and a half inch thick, you know, really high quality steels. And then I got to find out how difficult and expensive it is to cut said steel. So, yep. yeah, it's been a lot. <laughs> and I suddenly <laughs> realized why nobody does that. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, so it's it's been, uh, you know, it's always fun when you can learn something new and there's definitely been a lot of learning just in that one part alone. Yeah. So what is your, your final weapon weight turn out to be? Uh, if you count the whole assembly, it's about 60 pounds. Nice. Yeah. It's, and it's, uh, I don't know, I guess you've gotten some, some testing in. So what's your, your top speed looking like? Uh, it's, it's set up right now to run about a 185, you know, something like that. It's at the lower end. So what was sure. really interesting, you know, designing a, 
a spinner for the first time, right? And I've been doing a lot of cam over the last couple of years. And it was really interesting because I started looking at it. I'm like, wait a minute. I'm like, this is basically a single flute end mill, right? So I start, I pull out my my uh, speeds and feeds calculators and I start going, wait a minute, this is basically the same applied physics. Because basically when you cut a piece of metal, you have to determine how fast to spin the bit and you have to determine how fast to move the bit forward. And yep. it, it's really specific. Like if you have more number of teeth and you've got to move it at a different rate and spin it at a different rate. So I basically just applied that same to this and realized that there's a reason bite force always wins despite not being the fastest rotor in town. So so you're you're going for big hits, not fast hits, but big hits. This thing is, yeah, it's it's more of a catapult. Like if you look at yes. the face of the tooth on this thing, it is a giant flat. It looks more like bron like the end of Bronco's flipper than it does a tooth. Like it's <laughs> it's a giant scooping, catapulting type of thing. Yeah, it's meant to just absolutely launch. Because I mean, the reality is, I look at these robots now, and they're all armored and AR, and you know, it's just. The chances of cutting into that just isn't real. But if I can catapult you across the room, you know, something inside is probably going to break if I hit it hard enough. So that's kind of where this comes in. That makes a lot of sense. So uh, speaking of design choices that are similar to other robots, I couldn't help but notice from the renders that you were oh so kind to send us. Uh, you've got this lovely flat-fronted design with a really interesting mount on that front armor. I, I'm not exactly sure what it does it looks like it does something different than anything i've seen before so if you could elaborate on that uh it reminds me a lot of some of the flat the front armor that witch doctor uses where they're not trying to wedge their opponents they're literally using their spinner as the wedge so so uh, am i right on that a little bit Absolutely. Yeah. So our rotor is basically ground scraping. Like it's all the way to the ground in the in the bottom front. And it's actually we the front face of it is actually slightly negative. So it's basically an, it's a reverse wedge, basically. So it's designed to basically come on in with your little wedges, come and get closer to this giant rotating chunk of steel. So <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, it's exactly the opposite. So the way to think about this, so I look at I look at all the other verticals out there, right? And the strongest piece of the robots pretty much across the board is the weapon shaft, right? So we've yeah. got this ancient three quarter, just massively strong shaft that's in the in the core of the rotor. And what we did is we extended that that axle basically all the way across the robot. So we basically got rid of the box altogether. This this robot doesn't have a conventional chassis like you would see in the other robots. It doesn't, there's no box involved, right? Typically, when you build a robot, and all my previous robots, most of the components are bolted to the base plate, right? That's the yeah. main structural member. There is not one single component in this robot that is bolted to the back, to the front, to the top, or the bottom plates. So, I know. Try to wrap your head around what? that. Okay. Yeah. So, what's happening here is we took that main weapon shaft and we extended it the full width of the robot. So, it becomes the main structural axle, right? So that thing is an inch and three quarter thick grade five titanium shaft. So we've got this super, super strong axle that runs the full width of the robot. And then you've got, you know, your super heavy, you know, 60 pound rotor in the center. And then either side of that, you have these two articulated AR plates. So what we did is I really, really like, you know, all the robots out there that are using, you know, vibration dampening, that kind of thing. But the limitation is that those rubber dampers just aren't very strong. Yeah. 
So what we did is we actually hang those front armor plates on that axle that we extended out. So it's basically, it hangs on a, it's like a giant AR hinge on the back side of it. And then there's dampers behind it. So it can actually articulate about a half an inch crossways and front to back to absorb impact. So you're not only trying to hit a, you know, three eighths inch thick AR plate, it's an articulated three eighths inch thick AR plate that, you know, can actually move and absorb. So there's no hard mount to it at all. It just pivots on that same super strong axle. And you don't have to worry about sheer force on wubs ripping apart. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. So like, if you look at it, basically there's, I should send you guys the internals of this thing, but so on the front half, you've got the rotor in the middle and you've got these two giant armor plates, this flat face on either side of it that hang on that axle. And then off the back half, what we'll call the robot basically is just consistent of four three quarter inch thick, um, 70, 75 aluminum plates, you know, that are vertical. So there's four main structural panels, you know, plates that come off the opposite direction towards the back. Yep. Little tough to visualize, but basically those nope. are the main. I, I'm up. looking at the the render now, and I see exactly what you're saying, and that's what creates that outline. And then you've just basically screwed in a top, like a curving top plate on top of that. Right. Yeah. So now you've got so basically the front half of the robot, the the rotor and the two front plates actually weigh almost exactly the same as everything else. So then basically every, the entire robot pretty much hangs off this one giant axle up in the front of the robot. And then there's four more axle, like smaller cross-linking axles that distribute force and link all of the plates together in the back end. And then you have a curved back end plate that bolts you know, the rear bumper basically. And then you've got titanium plates top and bottom that kind of cross-link everything on top of that. So one of the really fun things that starts to happen once you do that is having built that monster truck bike, I was, you know, got a master class in censored brushless motor controllers. So I decided I was, I got to tell you, I am a huge death roll fan. Shout out to you guys. Uh, yep. I was both super happy and a little bitter that they beat me to the, the integrated hub motor drive. <laughs> Hopefully I did it better. So, you know, like they already beat me to the hub motor. I've got to one up it. So I'm like, how do you, how do you really take advantage of having your motors integrated into your wheels? Full suspension is what we did with it. So we, this robot actually has four-wheel, full independent coilover suspension on all four corners. So it's, uh, and on the surface, you know, we didn't really know how it was going to work out. We were really excited to try it because the spider bike, it was actually, we used the second generation spider bike suspension that we designed actually went into this robot. And a couple of magical things happen when you put suspension on a battle bot. One, if your floor is messed up, you've got a lot more, a lot more flexibility in your drivetrain. But it's just amazing, even driving it around our shop on our like polished concrete floors, just the amount of slip that my old middleweight has when the floor is even the tiniest amount irregular versus the traction you have when those tires can articulate is amazing. But the most hopeful, again, this is all design theory, but the hope is that being a vertical spinner, we take a massive amount of force when we hit something. Right. But if you have coilover suspension, we designed it so that the entire chassis can compress down to the ground. So when we hit something, it's not going into our axles. It's not going into our wheels. The entire robot will compress down onto it's the ground. It's going into the ground. So you'll have that impact force distributed over the entire bottom of the robot when it hits. So the idea is, 
I mean, to me, shout out to Paul Ventimiglia for being a superstar, but uh, he doesn't win because he has the most powerful weapon. He just has the most controllable weapon. Like he is absolutely the master of the follow-up shot and he does not go bouncing all over the place. So that's, you know, we put a lot of time into suspension design and weight distribution and making sure that that we had a good balance where we hit something, we don't want to move. We want to send them flying across the room, but we want to stay just exactly where we are and be able to immediately get that follow-up shot and, you know, just end things because, you know, it was great listening to the quantum guys last week and, you know, they just, they want a good fight. I just, I, I, I'm not as uh, gentleman like is them. <laughs> I, I, I'm here for the big hits. I'm here to, uh, to send some robots flying across the room and uh, made the best robot win. So, so speaking of those guys, speaking of quantum, speaking of top attack robots, I mean, you've got a really good front attack strategy here. Are, are you at all concerned about chomping robots, hammering robots, being able to get through that top plate? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, this, <laughs> thing, this thing is front heavy. Let's be real. It, it's a bulldozer with a giant chainsaw in the middle of it, you know, like, it is, it is meant to just full frontal, right? But it, this robot can absolutely be beaten. There's no question. If you get around the back of it, it's all kinds of juicy. Like if you get to the top of it, I mean, obviously we've got different attack. We've had a lot of time. So, you know, there's different attachments and that kind of stuff. But the nice thing is because of the way the internals are laid out, because everything is basically mounted on those vertical rear facing plates that come off there's really not much to bite into. It's, you know, there's just, you know, and it's hub motors, so we don't have any chains. Uh, another new one, I, I think uh, actually Copperhead may be moving to it, I think I saw, but I noticed nobody uses poly V-belts, you know, so we went to, uh, I think that's probably the thing I'm most worried about is, you know, belt breaking, that kind of thing. Sure. But uh, yeah, we went with poly Vs uh, just because they seem like a really good compromise between, you know, regular V-belts that don't get much traction and chains that, you know, then you have to get into clutches and it just becomes a much more complicated thing. So we're using some, uh, some pretty large, like 10 rib, you know, it's actually two full drive systems. So fun fact, Tracer, the reason I decided to just go full bore on this is because I have a pallet of stuff that's been staring at me for like two years. Okay. That as a former BattleBots guy, it's, it's cast off stuff that we can't use in production, but it's, you know, I, there's probably $10,000 in Brussels motors just like sitting there that are, you know, 510 kilowatt class motors that we can't sell and we can't get rid of. And I just happen to have a good use for So <laughs> it's kind of been taunting me for a long time to, to build this thing. But yeah, it, nice. it basically has two full Chimera drivetrains driving the weapon in this thing. So. Uh, I love that you're using poly V belts that I come from a theatrical uh, scenic construction background. So we use those on turntables. We use those on, um, you know, multiple use spinning axes systems all the time. And they're super durable and last for fricking ever. Um, so yeah, I fully support that choice. That's awesome. I mean, obviously so, the pulleys are a little trickier, but you know, hopefully yeah. it'll be worth the trade off. For sure. Um, all right, so you keep saying we. So is this uh, this is obviously not a solo build. So can you uh, tell us about your team? Yeah, so me and my two and a half year old daughter composed. <laughs> <laughs> we uh, we probably honestly have the most hours in it because we uh, we come in pretty much every Saturday morning and you know and kind of 
tinker around the robot and drive it around and she'll put some, you know, pony stickers on it for me and that kind of thing. And she's got all her color coded wrenches that she likes to pull out and that kind of thing. But, uh, but yeah, it's all chimera guys. So, I mean, you know, we work together every day and we, you know, build jet boards and all these crazy things that we work on. So it was a pretty easy transition team wise, you know, to, to be able to jump into this and, you know, we're pretty much always building prototypes in parallel anyway with what we're producing. So it was pretty easy just to put this in queue with the rest Jump of it. Into the mix, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, and the design was, you know, I think that's probably the other biggest thing about the design is, you know, I, I have massive respect for the guys making full CNC billet chassis. And I just, I think it's amazing what they're doing. But I wanted something that was economical. Yeah, I wanted something <laughs> that... Uh, yeah, I looked at the new fight format, and you're talking, you know, four fights before you even get to the real tournament. So I'm going, man, this is a marathon demolition derby. I need something that is completely just can be bolted together and taken apart. So that drove a lot of it. But, uh, but yeah, me and the guys all kind of came together around those those core, you know, deliverables like we do for anything else. And, uh, you know, hopefully we can build something pretty crazy with some stuff we mostly already had around. So that almost seems like cheating but we'll move on from there uh, <laughs> all right so we have our first listener question from jake anderson who asks why the stealth build um you know i don't know that it was really a stealth build i mean it, it wasn't like i was actively like trying to not tell anybody but i you know i kind of look at it like i've been out of it for so long that i'm not really a part of the community you know i've just been you know so with kids and work and you know and basically when coronavirus happened i just looked at it and went i had a, a real fear of you know how is BattleBots going to make it through this you know i yeah. it, it was so critical to me in my formative years and i look at my daughters and i just went i need to do anything i can to make sure BattleBots is still around for them to participate in when they're old enough so um you know, I just looked at it and went with the with the travel restrictions and everything else that was going on in the early days of it. I just went, man, if you take out international, I mean, just death roll, endgame, cobalt, minotaur alone, like you take out that amount of firepower from the show, I'm like, man, I I don't know. So we uh we originally kind of were working on on something else and uh we just went, okay, what what's the hardest hitting thing we could build in a short period of time because you know nobody really knows you know at that point you know when is this thing going to happen and we just went okay let's let's build something cool and let's make it awesome and make it really powerful and make it quick so that's kind of what uh where it came from um all right so next listener question nelly ellibot tactician rara granger asks wheels opinions favorite flavor Whoa. <laughs> so Rira, um, just for context here, is a well-known devourer of wheels. Uh, mm. In fact, she has quite a taste for different styles of wheels, different types of wheels. So whenever she meets a new builder or a new designer, her favorite thing to ask them is what kind of wheels they're planning on using on their robots and what oh. their favorite kind of wheels are to Eat. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, yeah. Uh, don't, yeah, mine are mine are very fancy. Yeah, they're uh, they have motors in them, so <laughs> they're, uh, they're brushless BLDC wheels. Yeah, they're uh, they are fun fact. Uh, very hacked hoverboard motors. They started out life as uh as BLDC hover mo uh, hoverboard motors. So wow. yeah, they're, uh, they're a lot more juicy than usual. Yeah, I'll tell you that 
hoverboard motors, I got, I got to tell you, are, are one of the most underrated pieces of available tech out there. Like the amount of engineering and quality that is that you can find in off-the-shelf hoverboard motors for like no money and with a little bit of modification end up with something that's really powerful and really amazingly controlled. It's it's fun fun fact, yeah. But uh, the Death Roll guys did something similar. I think they're using like a, a scooter version, but it's same principle. Yeah. Same principle, yeah. yeah. Interesting. All right, so um, as always, we have a series of deeply philosophical questions from BattleBot superfan Mary Catherine Carr. At this point, she may as well be a writer on our show. We always end the show with cool questions from her. Um, so I'm super curious if Shark Robert Herjvik knows of your robot and what he thinks. <laughs> Uh, you know, you know, being the CEO, I don't, I don't have to privy everyone to everything. I, I can make some unilateral decisions. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, no feedback on that one really, but, uh, you know, all the side projects we do are kind of at our own discretion, but, uh, but yeah, he doesn't know. Don't tell him. <laughs> Fair enough. See, that answers the other question. She was also going to ask, will he be, will we see a cameo at BattleBots and will he pose with Shark Harprian? Well, you got to remember, he's under ABC contract, so I, I think there might be some right some, uh, some cross lateral negotiations <laughs> 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 that would have to happen for that to be a possibility. But uh, <laughs> maybe. Um, all right. So, Mary Catherine Carr's next question: uh, What robots are you most excited to fight? Oh, I'm just here for Paul. Like I. You know. <laughs> <laughs> Out of sheer love and respect, I gotta tell you, like, no, I mean, him and Ray, I mean, Ray was there in 09, Paul and Ray yep. were both there. They were like really kind of the only two guys I actually talked with when I was there. But uh, yeah, I mean, both super, super great guys, you know, despite however they, you know, Ray may be shown on TV. But uh, I gotta tell you, the thing I, I mean, there's a lot of awesome things about Paul, but you know, just the fact that like, the consummate gentleman that is Paul, where the one thing you can bet on is that he's probably going to beat you, but he definitely will not put one extra scratch on your robot than necessary to beat you. And I just, every time, the level of control that he executes every single time is just, is amazing. And, uh, you know, I, I haven't earned the right to fight him, but uh, I hope to. I hope to uh, to get to that place. Regardless, you know, I'll take, and honestly, this robot it doesn't have the same heart in it because I, I don't know. There's something about when you build a robot that doesn't have a welded chassis. There's like no one part that you like really have your soul into, I guess. <laughs> like how I would describe it because it all just bolts together. So there's like no one part. Like I won't, I won't be heartbroken if I lose. So it, that enables you to, to be comfortable fighting anybody. But, but yeah, no, I would, I'd happily fight Tombstone. I would love, you know, a shot at the champ someday, but, uh, but yeah. All right, so next question from Mary. Do you think coming in as a relatively unknown bot will be an advantage or a disadvantage? Uh, I, I think it's probably a disadvantage. Oh, I mean, you know, who knows with, with the COVID factor. I mean, it really is kind of a, you know, a leveling of the field because, you know, it's difficult. You won't, you know, if you can't interact with people the same way you previously could, you know, it kind of puts us more on an even footing. But I think you'd actually be better off to have friends going into it, you know, just people to, you know, in the community that, you know, um, I don't think it's an advantage, you know, cause four wheel vertical spinners exist. It's not like, you know, Paul's going to go out and build something new, you know, to fight this robot. So, um, 
yeah, I think it's probably a disadvantage, you know, going in unknown and, you know, not with any friends in the competition. I was going to say, uh, one of the things that might be nice about a bubble championship, which is kind of what we're discussing right now, um, is you, you probably will get that chance to fight Paul if the uh, competition happens, just because there will be ample opportunity. I, you know, I can only hope, you know, like I say, I, uh, I will, <laughs> I will gladly take on whatever I'm given, but, uh, but yeah, no, it's, it's exciting stuff. I mean, you know, it, the amazing thing too is like, I just remember being a kid and doing this for the first time and like, you know, you put so much into it and it just was like the whole world. And I, I'm really excited to go back and be able to enjoy it this time. Hopefully. Yeah. I think that's probably my top goal is to not like super stress out about everything and realize that it is a competition and I'm serious about it, but not like have you know an emotional breakdown attached to you know potentially getting my robot ripped in half so <laughs> fair fair all right so since it wouldn't be nice to leave without a weird question mm. what weird. animals make up your ultimate chimera now for the audience who may not be aware the definition of a chimera is uh, a, any mythical or fictional creature with parts taken from various animals to describe anything composed of very disparate parts or perceived as wildly imaginative, imaginative, implausible, or dazzling. So, what animals make up your ultimate chimera? Oh, man. Um, well, I have a 90-pound Airedale Terrier who is literally called my furry shadow because he literally goes to work with me. He like is never more than six feet from me, so he'd definitely have to be part of it. So, yeah, uh, a 90-pound Airedale Terrier and a dolphin, I feel like, would have to be <laughs> the other part of it just because I spend so much time in and around the water. But, uh, but yeah, no, that's, that's nice you picked up on that because nobody knows what a chimera is, really. But yeah. <laughs> Of course, our friend Mary does. Awesome. All right. So thank you so much for talking with us, Jason. Uh, we cannot wait to see Tracer in the battle box soon. And uh, thank you for talking to us after Luke did all of the um, gumshoe work to figure out who you were. We really appreciate well, it. I figured you'd show up at my house if I didn't. So <laughs> <laughs> thank you guys. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much. After the break, we'll return with this week's installment of Robots Around the World. Welcome back from the break. Time for Robots Around the World. This week, we travel to the Atlantic Ocean, where an offshore wind farm is testing a solar-powered robotic scarecrow that prevents seagulls from <clears throat> pooping on the wind farm's helipad. For the past year, a British startup called ScareTech has been testing their robotic scarecrow on a wind farm 18 miles off the coast of Suffolk and says they've had good success. The scarecrow blasts seagulls with lights and sounds to prevent them from landing <laughs> on the deck and pooping. This is uh, perhaps my favorite robots around the world to date. I, uh, I love that this is where technology has brought us in the world. What, uh, what, what say you? Would you like to be blasted with lights and sounds when you uh, go to do your business? I imagine this robot as having delusions of grandeur like it sees a seagull flying towards um 
the helipad and it feels like it's shooting energy blasts and sound waves at said seagull to make it fly away when in reality it's probably just playing like a terrible foreigner song and shooting strobe lights at it i mean what all i would have done is i would have made another helipad right next to it that has like slightly better lighting and floofier hand towels <laughs> 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 That's a much more valid strategy, actually. I think that would have worked well. <laughs> I, uh, I, I just think this is so whimsical. I'm sure that the birds don't agree. Um, they'd just rather, you know, do their business without being hassled. Um, but I mean, it sounds like it's working. So, what other applications could we use this for? The time, time will tell. Can I can we talk for a minute about how the name Scaretech sounds like a terrible video game villain that you need to defeat by level 7? <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. I I thought Scaretech sounded like it came out of the Monsters uh, Inc universe. You yes, know? Like, that's absolutely. Good. Like that's that's extra stuff that you can add on, you know, when you go jumping into the children's Ooh. universe. I don't know. It sounds like uh, a, a company that makes 90% of the merchandise that's sold at uh, Spirit Halloween stores. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's how they make their income for uh, the other one one month of the year. Yeah. Well, that's about it for us today. We'll be back in your feed next Wednesday with another mystery guest. We'll see you then, folks. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.